I think it's fantastic when executives have non-exec roles. And it's quite common where you've got an executive who might sit on one or two organisations, sometimes chairs them. And it really helps that empathy sitting on the other side of the table, understanding what's a fantastic board paper, what's a clear recommendation, what's the line between governance and management. I think it really broadens out and deepens an executive's experience and uh, ability to interact with boards. Hi, I'm Sally Parrish, Amazon best-selling author of The Essential Field Guide for Company Directors and founder of the Board Coaching Institute. I've been in, on and around boards for over 20 years. And if you, like me, are passionate about the boardroom, then this podcast is for you. And I'd love you to join me on this mission to decode board success. What is it that sets some non-executive directors apart from the rest? How can you enhance your leadership skills so you can be highly effective in the boardroom? And what will it take to make board success a reality for you? I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I love making them and that they unlock the secrets for you to gain a competitive advantage and have massive impact and influence in your board roles. Let's get started. Joining us today from Canberra is David Maywald, non-executive director and AICD panelist participant. David, welcome to the Board Success Podcast. Thanks so much, Sally. It's lovely to be here with you. Let's start by hearing a little bit about your portfolio. You're now full-time, Ned. Can you walk us through some of the areas that you're working on right now? Sure thing. Well, I uh, picked up my first board role when I was at university 25 years ago as a treasurer for a small environmental NGO. And during my professional career as an investment manager, I had a number of other non-exec roles, including the canteen. I did the company director's course just over four years ago and made the transition out of financial services into full-time professional director, um, currently on the boards of five organisations, three here in Canberra, including a public company, one in Sydney and one in Adelaide. And most of those are registered charities. Hey, congratulations. Four years from GAICD to full-time NED. That's quite the achievement. I know we're going to talk about this today, but some people think that that can happen a lot faster than that. But that's incredible. Full-time NED. So stepping out of the executive and into full-time board work within five years. Now, the reason that I've asked you to come along today is that you've got this incredible body of research that's all around the board landscape. So just talk us through the scope of that research and what it was that prompted you to do it. Yeah, well, last year I was on an ARCD panel for aspiring directors who were looking to find their initial board roles. And that discussion really prompted you know a lot of thoughts around their board landscape and about the number of paid roles. And you know when I started looking for research on that type of broad perspective, I really couldn't find anything. There was a lot of research on the list of companies, you know, with their remuneration reports and visibility. There's a lot of great transparency for government boards. And also ACNC provides, you know, incredible amount of data for the registered charities. But once you go outside of that space, into the private companies, into the body corporates, into the unincorporated association sporting clubs and so on. It's really hard to get good quality data. And I didn't find anyone and still haven't found 
any good analysis of the whole board landscape. And so I threw myself into a project which took about three months of gathering and piecing together the best quality information that I could find. And for myself, I found that a really fascinating project intellectually and analytically. It did build on my 20 years as a research analyst and portfolio manager. I guess I bring that type of structure to questions and decision-making. And you know, I thought there were some valuable insights that came out of that work, and that's why I shared it publicly through LinkedIn. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely prepared by an analyst. There's lots of deep dives into different areas. So you've got subsets within subsets, really fascinating report. And we're going to put a link to that report in the show notes for anybody that wants the full information but we're going to talk about some of the highlights from that and just generally some of your findings on your journey from transferring from executive to net, but also in supporting aspiring execs in their journey as well. So we're going to look at three key areas, I think, today. The first one is around how easy is it to transition from executive to non-executive director. Then we're going to look at the not-for-profit landscape in particular, because there's a lot of myths around the not-for-profit area and, and whether or not that is the stepping stone to board success. And then thirdly, we'll look at some of that data that you've done around how much will I earn? I reckon that's the number one question that I ever get asked. How much do you earn as a board director? And the answer is very simple. It depends. And it's somewhere between zero at working as a volunteer. And I think the highest paid net is on over one and a half million dollars for one role. So the answer is it's somewhere between zero and one and a half million. But I think your research is going to give us a bit more, maybe parameters around that, right? A a few more guidelines around that. So let's start with our first area. So we're talking about how easy is it? So thinking about Someone who's in the C-suite right now, they've had an incredible career, strong track record, a lot of successes, looking for the board role for their first board break. What do you find typically with that type of executive, David, in terms of their readiness, their preparedness for these roles? They would be some of the most ready, particularly C-suite experience for ASX-listed companies. You know, within that, the shape's still important, you know, obviously the demographics gender, culture, racial, fitting those boxes, and the specific shape of professional experience, technical, functional, education, and background. There are gaps that have been necessarily filled in terms of technology, cyber, culture, that have been in high demand. And the more generic, larger categories of accounting, finance, versus legal, and other classic needs of boards. But it is very individual, isn't it? And like I say, those people, C-suites of listed companies have an advantage. Executives, senior executives, unlisted businesses, managers within nonprofits, functional experts, it's different across the whole world. Yeah. And I think that shape and form that you talk about, a lot of people just think, well, you know, I'm in the C-suite now and the board is the next step in the career ladder. And they look at that as a sort of a vertical progression, right? Like a promotion from exec to board. And I've got a very different opinion. I consider the board role to be a career change. You know, it's a very different way of working. It's a different use of your skill set. It's a completely different environment. So what would you say are some of the traps that people fall into when they look at transitioning to board roles? I think it's fantastic when executives have non-exec roles. 
And, you know, I've looked at a lot of CVs, a lot of LinkedIn profiles, and it's quite common, isn't it, where you've got an executive who might sit on one or two organisations, sometimes chairs them. And it really helps that empathy sitting on the other side of the table, understanding what's a fantastic board paper, what's a clear recommendation, what's the line between governance and management. I think it really broadens out and deepens an executive's experience and uh, ability to interact with boards. One of the other issues I call out is the challenge of skipping between your day life as an executive in management and, you know, your occasional board meetings or committee meetings. And the common thing I see is that execs and managers continue to manage and they find it hard to flip between those roles. And I can completely understand that. It's like almost like multitasking. If your full-time role or your business depends on you being a manager, but then in a 5pm board meeting, you're suddenly flipped into the government space, that can be really hard, including for chairs, because it might be a typical normal behaviour response to try and manage as a chair or a non-executive director. And particularly when you have to flip backwards and forwards during the day or when you're stressed or time poor, that's really challenging. And I have to say, the big game changer for me was pulling out of my professional career. I went to four days per week and three days per week when my second child was born and then eventually left that role. And I found it much easier to only navigate the governance space. You know, there was a sort of a two-year transition period there where I was still involved in that business, but I had a couple of board roles and so I was flicking backwards and forwards. But once I cut the tether and went all in, I found it much easier to consistently navigate the space as a non-executive director rather than the flipping backwards and forwards. Yeah, they're very different hats to wear, aren't they? And that delineation between the operational and the the strategic governance side. I know that I've got clients that have said when they've got a foot in each camp, what really helps is physical board meetings rather than online board meetings. It's really hard to be at your desk, on your laptop, in a Zoom call, in an operational meeting, and then the next Zoom call is a board meeting. It's really hard to make that transition, but a physical location actually allows you some kind of switching between the two, getting into that right mindset. And I think that's really important, right? Because you can have all the operational insights in the world and they could really benefit the business, but it's not the arena for that. And it's not about, you know, talking to everything that you can speak to in the agenda, but it's about knowing when to speak and when to add value. And often, you know, those tidbits of information that are really, really useful actually derail the board meeting and take them too operational. It can be much more damaging than beneficial. So I'm glad that you've mentioned that. We were talking before the call about psychological bias as well, right? You see somebody do it, one of your colleagues suddenly picks up a great board role and you think, well, I'm as skilled as they are, or I'm better skilled than they are. I'll I'll give it a shot myself. That whole psychological bias going on. Yeah, I think a lot of people who look to make the transition confident, they're assertive, they know they back themselves. They might have had success in business, they've climbed up a ladder and often been very successful and they're incredible people to network with and to be on boards with. But, you know, sometimes we're a bit too optimistic about the value and the contribution that we can make. And that's necessary in seeking to establish a portfolio of non-executive roles. But I guess when the rubber hits the road, 
is when you really have to look back at the shape of what you're able to contribute and what the perception is of what you contribute versus the hole that's needing to be filled in that individual organisation at that specific point in time. And personally, I can reflect back on when I was looking to add board roles. I was optimistic, confident, and probably a bit too overly optimistic about how much I could contribute and had to take a step back and accept the reality of there being an incredibly talented pool of prospective directors out there and only so many well-paid roles. Yeah, and I think as well, if you're an executive, you're only ever applying for roles where you're really good at this thing that you do, right? In fact, you're the best at this thing that you do, and you've had a lot of successes, a lot of confirmation bias around your successes. And so when you're going for an exec role, it's really easy to kind of dominate that area of expertise and showcase why you're the best person for that. When it comes to a board role, that's only one dimension, right? That area of expertise that you have in the field is one thing, but then there's the governance ability, the oversight ability, the ability to stay above the line and be strategic. And I think Harvard recently described it as a T-zone in terms of breadth and depth of expertise. So you have that. Professor Dean Blomsfield, he recently described it to me as You've got scuba divers and you've got the snorkelers. So you've got the divers and the snorkelers, people on the top and people that go deep. And so you've got that layer. But then you've also got the alignment. You know, what's the purpose of this organization? What are they working on right now? What are the strategic plan? What type of skills do they need to drive this successfully? And how does that compare to you as the individual? You know, what's your purpose? What's your value proposition? What are your values? What excites you? When I first start working with a client and I say, you know, what does board success look like to you? They say, um, probably an ASX role. Okay. Right. So let's drill down. You know, what are you bringing to that role? What industry is that in? What part of the business cycle are they in? What challenges are they facing right now? What's the likely crisis that they're going to face that you're going to add value to? How are you going to measure your success? And there's so much more to it. Then let's just get a board role. And that leads us nicely to the not for profit space because a lot of people out there believe that. The first step to your board career is by starting in the voluntary board space. And there's a lot of voluntary board opportunities out there. So it's really not difficult to get onto a volunteer board, but there are a lot of misconceptions around those. Yeah, absolutely. There are well-meaning people who are passionate about the causes that don't necessarily understand the gravity of what they've got into about the duties and obligations and potential positive or negative impact they could have on the organisations. And in the small to medium nonprofits space, there are a lot of people there who care a lot about the organisations but don't necessarily have the sharpness of professionalism or the up-to-date uh, continuous improvement and learning that you commonly see in the listed space and large unlisted companies and government, to be honest, and super funds. So that's challenging to navigate. And... There's also the perception from management and CEOs occasionally that as just being volunteers, they don't necessarily have to take the director seriously, that they could dismiss or put less weight on the decisions and input that's coming from their board because there's less of a formal relationship. They're not actually paying those people. And it's the execs and the managers who are there every day, full-time employees are being paid full-time, and being sometimes pay quite a lot of money, who have these volunteer boards turning up every one or two months discussing the key strategic issues, but not being anywhere near as well informed about 
the yeah. operations and the granular details as they are. And I think sometimes they underestimate the workload, right? So they measure it in. So how many board meetings are there? So there's one board meeting every two months. And how long does that typically run for? About four hours. Well, I can do that, but, you know. 20, 30 hours a year, I can fit that in. But actually, when you're on a board, you're on call, right? You may only be in a meeting for two hours a month, four hours a month, whatever that might be, but you've got your board packs and that responsibility to be across all of those board packs and be well-informed before you go into the meeting. And that might mean asking questions, doing research before you even get into that board meeting. You've got the post-meeting reviewing the minutes, you know, ensuring that everything's accurately recorded, that things are action, things are happening. But you've got that, I describe it like parenting. There was a Ned that I interviewed that said, it's just like parenting. You can drop your kids off at school, but it doesn't mean that they're not on your mind, right? And it doesn't mean that you're not going to get a call from sick bay at two o'clock today, right? You never know when the phone's going to ring, when the emails are going to come. And some boards are very prescriptive around when you can and cannot reach out to the board and others it's just like open slather right and you've got the exec team phoning the board all day long the board phoning the exec team all day long but I think this was really amplified during the pandemic when there were a lot of well-meaning non-executive directors who were on not-for-profit boards in the health space and I don't even think that paid people in that space would necessarily have the skills to navigate the pandemic and all that came with that in the healthcare space but we've heard time and time again board members like CEOs, C-suite going to the board and saying we haven't got enough people, we haven't got enough beds, we can't manage this, we can't manage that, this is happening, that's happening. And the board respond with, we're just volunteers. You know, we're just volunteers. We can't help you. And that phrase should never be uttered from a board. Should it? it doesn't matter if you're getting paid or not getting paid. And you said that you can have people that are really passionate, but not necessarily skilled. So we talk about well-meaning in that space, right? But you can also have people that are really skilled, but don't have that alignment they don't have that passion and that was me I one of the first roles I took I took because I got asked and I was flattered and I thought oh yeah sure I'll go and help this board that need me it's not that I didn't do my job I did do my job and it's not that I wasn't diligent I was but I had no interest in that role and those board meetings are long board meetings when that alignment isn't there yeah and it's the gravity of this you know really is felt in the non-profit space because, for example, some organisations provide aged care, childcare, vulnerable groups, disadvantaged groups in the community. And so the ethical as well as the legal uh, and compliance obligations have a really huge gravity. And the implications for the minors, child safety, health and safety, aged care, and you've got, you know, sometimes contractors going into client times. So there are some really, really important issues and, you know, well beyond the financial implications of the cost of doing business or the having to deal with audits and regulators, you know, there are important social ethical issues that have a lot of gravity. You know, compare, say, a very large for-profit aged care provider that has lots of uh, residential aged care facilities with paid board members, professionals, elite people who've come out of incredible careers in corporates and government and other areas, compared to, say, a local community organisation that has made the transition from servicing that local community to coming within the scope of formal aged care service provision, Commonwealth-funded, 
your quality standards have increased and increased, you've gone through a Royal Commission, suddenly you've got these volunteer board members who might have been volunteers for the organisation who transitioned into a governance role. But what they're being asked to do now in terms of meeting those standards and the compliance and legal obligations on their shoulders is very different to their initial years of contributing to the organisations and doesn't necessarily get easily dealt with by the regulatory and compliance frameworks that we have, which tend to be a bit ticker box and abstract and reductive, whereas the reality, like you're saying, there's a behavioural aspect that where you've got a volunteer and a well-meaning director who might feel that it's unreasonable to be asked to sign a quarterly report to the regulator confirming that the finances or the quality service provision is adequate. And also it haven't necessarily had the training, education, professional development because the organisation has such thin margins. It hasn't provided the satisfactory induction. It hasn't had ongoing continuous learning. A lot of that's put on the shoulders of the voluntary NEDs, the small and medium nonprofits and registered charities. And if you've got a full-time job or a business plus a family or other caring commitments, that's really challenging to juggle your self-funding. You have to find the extra time. So this is why I think there is a role for full-time professional directors in the nonprofit space who approach a you know professional like I do. I'm very eager to engage in professional development and continuous learning and take the roles very seriously. And there's also the argument that should not-for-profits pay their board members, right? Because the argument is that the more professionally qualified and remunerated your board members are, the more value that the organisation is going to get overall anyway. So I think we've both seen it in our professional careers where you're sat around the table of a not-for-profit and everyone is there for different reasons. And, you know, some are there because they're passionate, some are there because they're highly skilled, some are there because they want a line on their resume. And it's interesting that you talk about, you know, some of those more highly regulated environments tend to be the areas where, you know, there's more not-for-profit opportunity. And I've seen it where, you know, the board aren't really across the legislation and they're saying to the CEO, are you confident that we're meeting all of our requirements? And the CEO goes, yeah, we are. And they go, whew, well, that's that crossed off then, right? That's not the board's job. The board's job is to verify and validate and question and, you know, to have assurance in those areas, not to ask the CEO, are you confident that you've done these things? What tips can we give our listeners today who might be looking for their first role and contemplating the not-for-profit space? In terms of a, a top three tips, what would you say? Certainly the alignment there needs to be really strong. It has to be a cause that resonates with you personally, that means a lot to you. You know, David Gonski talks about this. He mentioned it at the Australian Government Summit. If it resonates enough, if you're passionate about it, you will naturally lean in. Yeah. You'll spend your time at the sites. You'll get to know the clients. You'll understand the issues in, from different perspectives. The second one would be approach it as a professional. You will have to invest. You have to put time and money. I mean, even, for example, one of my paid roles, I receive a small payment but actually I put more money than that into attending board meetings, professional development, you know, extra time and effort to yeah. contribute because I take it really seriously and I care about the clients and their outcomes and the impact that we're having. And, you know, the third, not necessarily a stepping stone. You know, if you're passionate about these courses, you might find yourself contributing for 10 years on a board 
and then transition over to another organisation that then takes your interest at that time. I think there's a role for professional directors in outside of companies, outside of government, you know, in a non-profit, registered charity, sporting and other spaces. Possibly in the future, you know, the large owners corporations, body corporates might be forced to increasingly pay. It's come up recently, the Sydney Morning Herald had an article recently talking about body corporates and about the multi-million dollar budgets that they have, maintenance, sometimes defect rectification for large high-rise apartment buildings. You know, these are really expensive assets to build and just classic, it has been a voluntary management committee, but they have very similar roles to a governing body. They're representatives, they've got some decision-making power, they outsource uh, often to service provider. So they're navigating a governance space. So this is an area I think that can be an ongoing contribution and not necessarily, I don't look at it as a stepping stone, I see an ongoing contribution there that's really worthwhile and not necessarily from a financial perspective, but from social, environmental, you know, family and resonating with your personal values. Yeah, I love that. There's a lot of body corporates out there grappling with the whole flammable cladding issue, right? That's an incredibly complex, dangerous area to be making decisions in. If you're just there as a volunteer, just to get a bit of experience and you've you know got a passion for the apartments that you're living in or the complex that you're living in right now. I just want to add to what you've said, because talking about responsibilities there, and there is a myth out there that the volunteers have no responsibilities. You know, they can turn up just to their best and every little helps. So just for anyone listening who thinks that might be the case, just know that there are just the same responsibilities and liabilities on non-executive directors in the not-for-profit space as there are the commercial space. So please don't ever go into this thinking that, you know, it's a stepping stone because there aren't those responsibilities. And to speak to that, you know, I'm adding value, I'm helping out. Unless you're aligned, like David said, unless you're fully committed, unless you're leaning in, you really are a waste of a seat in a board. And we know that boards can be far more effective with fewer people who are passionate and leaning in than with a big team of people who aren't really contributing. So don't ever think that you're doing the board a favor by joining them unless you are anything other than a 150% dedicated. And that stepping stone, that's a really good point, right? Because I often talk about reverse engineering your board career. So look at the board portfolio you want, reverse engineer from there to today to think about how you're going to get there. And a lot of people do think of not-for-profit boards as a stepping stone. So you quite rightly said it might not necessarily be a stepping stone. It might be step one and you end up there and you stay there. But also if you're using a not-for-profit as a stepping stone. You've got to be really clear as to what that's a stepping stone for. So is it around building a certain skill set? Is it around gaining a certain level of governance experience? Is it around the people who are on that board and who might mentor you? Because you've got to make sure that those things exist on that board if that's what you're using them as a stepping stone for. All right, third and final piece, let's get into this research that you've done, because this is really exciting, right? So how much opportunity is out there and how much can we get paid as non-executive directors? When you take a, a step back and look at the whole landscape, the best estimates that I had was about half a million boards in Australia. And that's the broadest sort of view of the landscape. But think about some sub-segments of those you know, listed companies. There are only 2,000 ASX listed companies, whereas there are 60,000 registered charities on the ACNC's database. So that's a factor of 30 to go from to 60. And 
Those two are the areas where it's easier <laughs> to get the data. There are obviously low number of thousands of Commonwealth and state government boards as well, you know, a very small number, 100 or so large super funds. And then there are the unlisted companies. Now, that's a space that's quite hard to get visibility on because for the smaller unlisted companies, you might only have the founders or the big shareholders and others when they're that small and younger. Often they do go through point of hiring their first non-executive independent director. And I guess that's the threshold that I see for calling them more of a board rather than being a management committee or being a hybrid committee. I mean, two executive directors, does that count as a board? It's uh, <laughs> when they're both shareholders and they've both been founders, I'm not sure you can really call that part of the board landscape. And the startups obviously are different as well, where you might be able to buy yourself a board role in a startup that they might be more interested in your money than interested in your governance contribution. So outside of those areas, there are another couple of big categories of boards in Australia. There are the unincorporated associations and non-registered non-profits and non-registered charities, and that includes sporting and community organisations and many other bodies that you see, but reach that threshold of being registered and within the 60,000 on the ACNC's website. And a lot of people love their sport. They're involved. They might be on a management committee. They might de facto fall into a governance role. School boards as well. And like I mentioned, the body corporates, where a lot of people don't necessarily think it's a board. They don't recognise it as a governing body. But I mentioned you know, some of the similarities to boards that you're representing the broader uh, group of owners, that there's decision-making power, you're outsourcing the operations you know, to a third party. So I see those roles as being quite similar. If you're on a body corporate or a school board, or if you're a leader in your sporting organisation, you've got similar functional responsibilities, maybe slightly different legal responsibilities depending on which category you are in. So that's what I see as the broader board landscape. And within that, there are you know, a small number of well-paid roles. And those tend to be, obviously, listed companies, the large unlisted private companies, as mentioned, the larger non-profits, the registered charities. But that's you know less than 5% of registered charities paying. And within that, only a small percentage of the very top-end paid well mentioned super funds and then government boards. So... Those would be the most attractive. And for the really well-paid directors, it's probably, you know, 3% or so out of the whole pool. And, you know, you framed our discussion earlier around C-suite execs, particularly with skill sets and expertise and capability that's amenable to governing roles would be in a sweet spot for competing for those well-paid roles. So when you say a small number of well-paid roles, how many roles are there and what's your benchmark for well-paid? The research that I've done has tried to draw on public uh, available information surveys and it tries to piece together those different categories. And so the best visibility does come from the listed companies and remuneration reports and some of the disclosures around key management personnel for registered charities as well as the disclosures from state and federal governments. So that's probably where there's the best visibility. There's not good visibility for unlisted companies, which generally don't have anything like the transparency requirements of getting into the listed space. And my best estimate is that there are about 17,000 boards 
that are paying well with about 100,000 non-executive directors in that space. And if you think about that that bigger landscape where you might have two and a half million or so non-executive directors across all those half a million boards, it's a pretty small percentage. A half a million non-executive directors across... Half a million boards. So half... that's my best estimate of approximately half a million governing bodies. Yeah, yeah. But on those, there would be about two and a half million so positions. Yeah. And obviously you've got double ups, right? Because some people like myself have multiple roles. Yeah, it's hard to know Others how many roles, like, yeah. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, there are my best estimate of those well paid payrolls is more around 100,000 out of the two and a half million. And that 100,000 is give or take about 20,000, right? It's somewhere between about 73,000 and 120,000. So in a nutshell, there are around 17,000 boards who appoint around 93,000 Ned positions, so that could be someone holding multiple positions, but 93,000 Ned positions paying somewhere between 73,000 and 120,000. And then obviously there's a lot of information out there that's not available. There are a lot of roles that are a lot higher than that. The vast majority are unpaid. So it's really, really difficult to get that data. But I think that's the closest we've ever come in this industry to really understanding what the reality of that board landscape is. There's a pretty good understanding about where the better paid roles are because, you know, we have the visibility on on remuneration reports in the listed space and you can make assumptions translating that across to the unlisted space. If you've got companies with about the same revenue, about the same employment base, similar profitability, then there will be assumptions made about how much they're paying their directors. Um, So private equity, you know, can pay very good money, sometimes supercharged by having shares in the companies as well, which is part of the total remuneration. So, you know, the average for listed company directors, which you can see from a research, is over $100,000 per non-executive director. And clearly, if you're a chair or if you're on multiple committees, then you can take on more than that again. The super funds pay pretty well, although there are a very small number of them and nothing consolidating. And it's quite quite challenging to get onto those trustee boards. Unpaid companies, the larger ones are paying quite well, but we don't have good visibility there. And I've you know been pretty yeah. clear in my research that there's a big error band, a big estimation band around those. And then the state and federal governments tend to pay reasonably well. There's great gender equity. For example, we've surpassed the gender parity for Commonwealth government boards. So it can be a fantastic option for really talented female directors yeah. who are establishing their careers. You know, similar pay to local councillors. And if you think about that, it's a governing board making ordinances and representative and have a range of duties as well, which is interesting that local councils you know, pay quite similar to some of the government boards. But then, you know, the lower levels of pay reach the charities. And from a number of different data points, there's a range sort of there from 15,000, 30,000, around 20,000 or so for the well-paying roles in registered charities. Yeah, really, really interesting. So we'll put a link to your research in the show notes there. There's the full report, all the assumptions and everything's in that report for anyone that wants the detail. But I think in summary today, David, what we're saying is that think about the right role for you in terms of your fit, the alignment, what that looks like. Have a look at not-for-profit as a stepping stone, but make sure that you're truly thinking about what that stepping stone is too and how you're going to add value while you're in that stepping stone and the reality that you know boards can be 
lucrative. They absolutely can, but there's a lot less opportunity out there than we like to think that there is. Nonetheless, there's still nearly 100,000 NED positions out there for the right people. And those with the right skills that are leading with purpose and alignment are the ones that are going to land those. Absolutely. Hopefully more boards will pay as well. And they'll recognize the value that's being contributed by the directors and also improve the culture of incorporating governance, you know, integrally into the organizations. Yeah. And also that there are lots of benefits of being in an unpaid role anyway, personal growth, professional growth, that development, that director's mindset transfers to your executive role and makes you a better performing exec because you understand what the board does and you can report more effectively you can present more fluidly you you understand all of that so there are other benefits financial is just one aspect that we're looking at today but there are other aspects of those not-for-profit voluntary roles as well david thank you very much for the research that you've done for being a thought leader in this space we really appreciate it and thanks for joining us today pleasure speaking with you thank you Thanks very much for tuning in. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what you took away from it. I'd also love to know what topics you're interested in hearing about in the future and which experts you think should be featured on this Board Success podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please share with your colleagues who might also have an interest and make sure you click to follow or subscribe to be advised of our upcoming episodes. In the meantime, if you're a leader or a successful executive and you're looking to launch your board career, or if you're an established non-executive director and you're ready for the next level, check out the resources we have available for you on the website at boardcoachinginstitute.com.au. Until next time, here's to your board success.